You may be seated. And when you are, please open your copies of God's Word to the book of Romans. We're going to complete chapter 8 today, Lord willing. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 39, as is our custom. Though we'll start on the passage we reflected on uh, the time previous. So we're going to begin reading at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we'll read through the chapter. As you're turning there, you might, I'll pick you up on where we were, as you uh, might remember in Romans 28, God's been telling us about who we are as believers. He says that believers have been transformed from that place where they were dead in sins and that they've been made alive in Christ. He says the Holy Spirit indwells in us and he tells us, he reminds us that we have a new identity. He says that we are children of God and that we ought to therefore call God Father. He reminds us of how close and intimate our relationship is. He says, the Spirit testifies in your heart that you belong to him. And then he, of course, turns and reminds us that he has known you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you and he called you out of the world to be his own. And what he started, he will complete. You will be glorified. And that brings us to where we are this morning. So let's start. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. This is God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for our sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful for your word, and we're certainly grateful for passages like this. Uh, Lord, you know how often 
we need to be reminded of your love. We do pray that we, you would take these words of, of yours and that you would place them deep within our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would pour out a special portion of grace on us this morning that we could do the hard work of listening and thinking intently. Lord, do a work in us, transform us, equip us, strengthen us. Lord, we'd ask these things in Christ's name and for his glory's sake. Amen. Let me take you back in time to a moment in history, World War II. I picture this, it's May 1940 and the Nazis are sweeping across Europe. They're knocking everyone down one by one and Britain does its best to, to jump in there but they're uh, pushed back and they're cornered in Dunkirk. They're about to be wiped out and Winston Churchill, the prime minister, faced a dire situation In this crisis, he spoke to the British people. Uh, One of his famous speeches was, we shall fight on the beaches. You remember uh, that speech? It's it's hard to forget. I can hear just saying the title. I can hear the sound of Churchill's Churchill's impassioned uh, voice. Churchill's words were absolutely resolute, and his determination was unwavering. He gave hope in the darkest hour. Despite the panic, Churchill's word brought immense comfort to the people. He reassured the nation, and he he reunited the British people against Nazi Germany. And similarly, in our passage, it carries a reassuring message, but it holds much greater significance for believers. While Churchill's speech provided temporary comfort and motivation during a specific historical crisis, Romans 8 offers eternal assurance and hope to Christians. This passage emphasizes the unshakable love of God, the security of believers in Christ and the impossibility of anything separating them from the love of God. This passage is about God's love. That's clear to see. If you glance at your copy of God's word, you'll see that in verse 35, 37, and 39. So as we explore this text, our focus is going to be on understanding what it reveals about God's love and how it provides reassurance to believers. And to help us navigate through that, we'll break it down into four compelling reasons that offers us reassurance in God's love. And we're going to start with the first reason, which is beautifully articulated in verses 31 and 32. These verses reveal the remarkable support we find in God's love, and that's why our first heading is about reassurance in God's support. Reassurance in God's support. You'll notice that Paul starts off the text with a question. He asks, what then shall we say about these things? And so we ask ourselves, what are these things that Paul is referring to? 
And he's referring to the preceding verses and the overall message and themes. I'm going all the way back to the beginning as he's led us through the reasons why we all need the gospel, as well as what the gospel is itself. And then he looks and he presents to us Romans 8. Specifically, he's referring to the assurance of believers in God's love and the security they have in Christ, which has been discussed throughout Romans 8. Paul's prompting us to respond to and reflect upon the profound truths that are presented in Romans 8 regarding our relationship with God as his children and the assurance we have in his love. What then shall we say about these things? Paul answers, if God is for us, who can be against us? By posing this question, Paul is essentially saying that if God, who is all-powerful and sovereign, is on our side, then there's no force or opposition or adversary that can ultimately prevail against you. It's a statement of confidence in God's providential care and protection. Believer, God is for you. God's support is absolute and unshakable. And this truth should give believers great assurance and confidence as they face the challenges of life. It's a reminder that if you're in Christ and God is for you, no one and nothing can ultimately thwart God's purposes for your life. So how do we know that God is for us? I mean, it sounds good to say God is for us, but how can we be sure? Notice verse 32. Something's happened in space and time and history to prove once and for all that God is for you. Verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's emphasizing the incredible depth of God's love and provision for believers. He's reminding us, he's reminding you that God did not spare his own son, but that he gave him up for you, for us. Here, Paul is referring to the sacrificial act of of God the Father sending his son, Jesus, to be crucified on the cross for the sins of his people. This act of giving up his son as a perfect sacrifice is the ultimate demonstration of God's love and grace. It speaks to the costliness of God's love and his willingness to make the greatest sacrifice for the sake of your salvation. Now I want to pause here. I want to pause here because this is easy to miss. Do not, do not discount God's love and his sacrifice. If you go to dinner with someone, a group of people, and you pick up that bill, 
If you're the one that's being treated, you say thank you, but you don't feel the weight. But if you're the one taking all those people out, you feel the weight, the cost. Don't discount God's, what it cost him. Also, stop and don't think, don't stumble into thinking God's like some kind of supercomputer, that he's just some force. No, we believe in one God in three persons. God is a person. Don't discount his sacrifice. Paul reminds us that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then he says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's point here is that if God was willing to give up his son for your salvation, then logically it follows that God will graciously provide you with everything that you need. The assurance is that if God has already done the greater, which is offering Jesus for our redemption, then he will certainly provide the lesser thing that we require for our spiritual journey and our well-being. If God has shown his love through the greatest act of sacrifice, there's no reason to doubt his willingness to provide and care for you in all other aspects of life. Does that make sense? That should be a comfort. Having seen the profound depth of God's love and not sparing his son, we naturally move to the next reason we should have reassurance. Our justification in Christ. In verses 33 and 34, we see that we should have reassurance in God's justification. That's our second heading, Reassurance in God's justification. In verse 33, Paul continues to ask rhetorical questions. He asks, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And then he declares, it is God who justifies. You can hear the judicial language in that verse, can't you? The terms bring a charge or justifies our legal or courtroom terminology. In this context, Paul is framing the believer's relationship with God in terms of a legal proceeding. And the significance of this judicial language is highly relevant. It's highly relevant. Regarding those the Lord has chosen for himself who can successfully charge them of a crime. Paul's making a powerful argument to emphasize the security of believers in the face of any potential accusations or charges against them. He's essentially saying that if God, the ultimate judge, has declared believers righteous, then no one else has the authority or ability to successfully bring charges against them. God's verdict of justification is final and it's absolute. That's good news. 
That's fantastic news. When the judge of all the earth says, not guilty, then listen here, you are not guilty. The gavel, the gavel has come down. The case is closed. If you're in Christ, you are justified. Praise God. When God justifies you, it means that he has declared you righteous. He's forgiven your sins based on the finished work of Christ. You're no longer under condemnation. Feel free. Feel free. Feel the freedom that was purchased for you. When you're being accused about your past sins and mistakes, it's crucial to return to the gospel message and to remind yourself of the truth that God has already pronounced a verdict of not guilty for those who have faith in Christ. By doing so, you you reaffirm the foundational aspect of your faith that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross paid for your sins and that through faith you have been declared righteous in God's sight. That's the core of the gospel. It's no wonder that Paul continues in verse 34 saying, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who, has, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus was not only crucified, but he was raised from the dead. This resurrection signifies Christ's victory over death and sin and the powers of darkness. It's a testament to his divine authority and the acceptance of his sacrifice by God. Our justification hinges on both Christ's death and resurrection. And notice the exalted position of Christ. Being seated at the right hand of God is a position of honor and authority and power. Our text says that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Understand that Christ, after accomplishing redemption, now reigns in glory and majesty. This placement signifies his role as Lord and Savior over all creation, including your life and your circumstances. This highlights his ongoing authority to intercede for believers and govern the universe in perfect alignment with God's divine plan. You see, Jesus has an ongoing and active role in the life of the believer. Understand that even in this exalted position, Christ is actively interceding on your behalf. This intercession represents his continuous advocacy for believers before God. 
Jesus pleads your case. He defends you against accusations and ensures your justification and your sanctification. This is a comforting reminder that we have a high priest who empathizes with our weaknesses and actively works for our good. We're reassured because God has justified us and he continues to care for us. And that leads to the next reason for reassurance. The love of Christ. In verses 35 through 37, we see that we should have reassurance in God's love. That's our third heading. Reassurance in God's love. At times, circumstances arise in our lives that challenges our thinking and tempts us to stray from the truth. Like, say, when you're on a diet and faced with a table of tempting desserts at a friend's party, these situations can test your resolve and your, con- and your commitment to knowing the truth, or the truth about Uh, what is right, and what you ought to do. Likewise, circumstances in our lives can sometimes lead us astray from thinking clearly about Christ's love for us. Paul wants you to be clear about the love of Christ. In verse 35, he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul presents a rhetorical question that sets the stage for the rest of the passage. You'll notice that he lists various hardships and trials that believers might face in life, such as tribulation and distress and persecution. He wants us to understand that these challenging circumstances, while difficult, should not be interpreted as evidence of Christ's abandonment. It's important to understand, because when the pressures of life hit us, that's a question that's going to come to you. Does he love me? How can he love me? Why would he do this? How could he let this happen? Christ has not abandoned us. This list implies that Christ's love remains steadfast even amid adversity. And then Paul continues his list with examples like famine and nakedness. By including these tangible needs, he underscores that even when facing material or physical hardships, Christ's love remains intact. He wants us to grasp the idea that our physical circumstances, no matter how dire, cannot nullify Christ's love and care for us. And the final phrase mentions danger of threat and violence. Paul mentions the sword. Even when facing violence and death, believers can have confidence in Christ's love, which acts as a shield of protection. 
God wants us to understand that Christ's love not only endures, but also provides strength and courage in dangerous times. Christ's love is resilient, it's constant, and it's all-encompassing. Nothing in the external world should cause you to doubt the enduring love of Christ. And you see that as verse 36 continues. Paul points us back to Psalm 44. He says, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's pointing us to the reality of suffering and persecution that God's people have faced throughout history. Suffering shouldn't be interpreted as evidence of God's abandonment or lack of love. Believers have often experienced suffering despite their devotion to God. That's what we see in history. Paul wants to encourage us to see suffering in the broader context of God's redemptive plan. Suffering shouldn't lead to despair and doubt regarding God's love. Instead, it can be viewed as a testament to the fallen nature of this world and a reminder of the ultimate victory that believers have in Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? In verse 37, Paul answers with a resounding no. No. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul wants believers to understand the depth and extent of their victory in Christ. It goes beyond mere triumph. We're more than conquerors. We're super conquerors. Believer, you have an overwhelming and surpassing victory that's rooted in Christ's love. Despite the various trials and challenges listed earlier in this passage, you don't merely survive or endure them. You will emerge from them with a resounding victory. You will be glorified. And you will live in the presence of Christ forever. Forever. It is a promise. This victory isn't achieved in our own strength, but it is a result of our inseparable connection to Christ's love and his faithfulness. This leads to the next reason for reassurance. Reassurance in God's faithfulness. That's our fourth heading. Reassurance in God's faithfulness. You might remember that game show, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You remember it? Contestants were given uh, multiple choice uh, questions, and each one of them had a possibility of four answers. 
And most formats of the show also gave contestants three lifelines. Then there was that question that the host uh, became famous for answering, right? You remember uh, the question. Is that your final answer? Is, Is that your final answer? Are you sure? Well, in verses 38 through 39, Paul gives his final answer about whether or not believers can be separated from the love of Christ and inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is sure of his answer. Draw your attention to verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul's proclaiming the unbreakable and all-encompassing nature of God's love, which is firmly anchored in Christ. He begins by addressing the extremes of human existence, death, and life. He wants us to understand that neither the uncertainty nor the vulnerability of life can separate us from God's love. And this includes things like the effects of a stroke or dementia or Alzheimer's. The vulnerabilities of this life cannot separate believers from the love of Christ, nor can the inevitability of death. And then Paul focuses on the spiritual realm when he speaks of angels and rulers. His point is that no celestial or earthly authority can disrupt the bond believers have with God's love. There's no entity supernatural or natural in the world that has the power to disrupt God's love. Paul says, for I am sure that things present nor things to come will be able to separate us from the love of God. Here he expands his scope and encompasses the entire timeline of human existence, past, present, and future. He wants us to grasp that God's love is not subject to the constraints of time or circumstance whether in the current moment or in the unknown future, God's love remains steadfast and unchanging because he is steadfast and unchanging. His promises are sure. And then Paul concludes by saying, for I am sure that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
In this final phrase, Paul encapsulates the message by saying that no physical or metaphysical dimension can disrupt the love of God. And by stating, nor anything else in all creation, Paul leaves no room for doubt. Absolutely nothing in the entire created order can break the bond between believers and the love of God in Christ Jesus. The significance of Paul's message is profound. Nothing, nothing, no matter how formidable or seemingly insurmountable, can separate believers from God's love. These promises are based on the work of Christ Jesus, who is the embodiment of God's faithfulness. Through Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, God demonstrated his unwavering commitment to reconcile believers to himself. And since the promises are rooted in Christ's redemptive work, they are inseparable from God's faithfulness as seen in the unshakable covenant sealed in the blood of Christ. Nothing, nothing in the entire created order can stand between believers and God's love. This passage provides us with four compelling reasons to find reassurance. Paul's words offer us an eternal source of reassurance. We began with the reassurance of God's support, a support so profound that nothing in the universe can stand against us. We discovered that if God was willing to give up his son for our redemption, he will graciously provide us with all we need. Moving forward, we explored God's justification where we found that a verdict has been pronounced by the ultimate judge of the universe and it resounds with the declaration of not guilty for those who have faith in Christ. The case is closed. The gavel has fallen and we stand justified in Christ. Next, we delved into God's love, discovering that not even the trials or tribulations of life, nor any external circumstance can separate us from the boundless love of Christ. And finally, we reached the pinnacle of reassurance, God's unwavering faithfulness. No matter what we face, death or life, present or future, earthly or supernatural forces, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Regardless of what circumstances come your way, our hope is anchored in Christ who has demonstrated his love and faithfulness throughout the ages. Be reassured today and every day by the unshakable, unbreakable love of God, which is secured in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful for your word.
It is like balm to our souls. We're so grateful for the gospel, and we're so grateful that you point us back to the truth that we can never be separated from your love. What you have started, you will finish. Oh Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands. Help us to trust you. Help us to reflect on your word. Take this, your text, and embed it in our hearts. Emboss it upon us. Lord, may we live this way with reassurance in your love. Lord, we'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.